Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have quantum physicist, Dr. Jude Kervian. And in this episode, we discuss the cosmic hologram, how quantum physics is getting closer and closer to proving that theoretically, this universe is a simulation, a hologram. But the question is, who made this hologram? Who made this simulation? Well, we talk about God, spirituality, source energy, and how this all ties together with the cosmic hologram that has been discussed for thousands of years in the ancient texts. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Jude Caravan. How are you doing, Dr. Jude? I'm delighted to be here, Alex. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a very rainy day in England. So you're bringing sunshine into my day. So thank <laughs> you so much. I appreciate that. I heard you guys had a, a fairly warm summer that passed. <laughs> we did, but we're now making up for it and we're getting the blessings <laughs> of the rain. Because <laughs> <Good. laughs> I mean, England is beautiful, but it's not known for its wonderful white sign beaches. Uh, well, is it? <laughs> Some nice beaches, but at the moment, <laughs> I personally would not invite you onto one because all there would Fair be enough. is lots of rain and lots of waves. Fantastic. I appreciate it. So uh, I'm going to just jump right into it. What was? How did you begin your journey into spirituality and science, which is I love that bridge that you're able to bring between the two. Thank you. It, it's so far. It's so far past. I was four years old, really, when I began this journey. And it was a it was more a dance because it wasn't, you know, spirituality or science. It was a dance of the two right from the get go, right from the get go. Um, I was very young. I grew up in the north of England. Um, My dad was a coal miner, as was my granddad. So we were not an intellectual family by any stretch, but there was a lot of love. And that was just as well, because I think I was the cuckoo in the nest, because I was a very strange child. Um, Insofar that I was experiencing um, sort of multidimensional realities, literally, since I was very early, since I was about four years old. Mm. So I was having telepathic experiences, precognitive dreams, out-of-body experiences, And I was also engaging and communicating with what, you know, a lot of parents would have described as imaginary friends. But -hmm. since I didn't tell anybody that I was having these communications, nobody said, oh, they're just imaginary. And that became a lifelong journey of literally walking between worlds. 
in such a natural way that it's it's part and parcel of, of my life. So my spirituality, if we want to call it that, because it never felt separate from the rest of my life and, mm-hmm. and an experience and existence, but nonetheless, that non-physicalized, I suppose, um, aspect aspects of my life were there from the very earliest times. But I do remember as well when I was about the same age, looking up into the sky and being fascinated by the stars. And somehow there was something within me that from a very, again, early age, I was able to recognise the patterns that we call constellations. And so from six, seven, eight years old, if I'd have been sort of plonked down in a strange place, I would have been able to find my way home through the stars. And so I was fascinated by the universe and so science. And as, you know, and and my question was from that day, those days, you know, how was what I was experiencing? How did that then bridge into the realities of our universe? Because I was experiencing the world as a much, much grander place. So for me, there's never been a bridge, it's never been a bridge because there's never been for me a bridge to cross. It was just experiencing, seeing, exploring mm-hmm. the world in those two different ways. One more from the head and one more from the heart and the and the experience. Well, let me ask you, I mean, at a certain point in your travels, you realize that not everybody has these uh, these talking to the different, you know, multi realities and, and and have this kind of understanding. So I'd imagine at a certain point in your journey, you said, "Oh, I'm I'm the weirdo. I'm the one that nobody else. I better either keep this quiet or come out with it." But then you also went down the academic route, which I know does not. Uh, it's not very open minded uh, <laughs> to this kind of this kind of talk. So how did you? deal or you know kind of balance those two those two worlds once you realized that you were not you were this was not a normal scenario i actually think it's more normal than people let on you know mm-hmm. you know i get people for, for for decades have sort of cornered me at parties and said oh. i've never shared this with anyone else. i get that too now i get that too all the time <laughs> you do. i bet you do <laughs> And and now it's it's really fun because this last year or so, there've been several books of the you know quote the spiritual awakening of scientists, and mm-hmm. more and more and more scientists are sort of sharing their experiences and naturalizing them, normalizing them, and these are these are courageous folks, Alex, because. You know, I was saved from being an academic scientist by the universe, sort of making sure I, I, I took another route. But if I'd have been in an academic environment, I suspect it would have been very difficult. Fortunately for me, A, I only sort of got the sense quite late on that I was the weird one. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the word, the word weird comes from Old English and it means it means the way of wisdom. So I think we should be proud to be weird. I think we should yes. be grateful to be weird. Agreed. I, one weird, one weirdo to another, my dear. One weirdo to another. It's the way the we, the way the weird. Um, but you know, so 
but now more and more folks are acknowledging this. And it's very difficult. I think if you're educated, as our education systems are, with that paradigm pretty much of materialism and separation, and you went through that as, as I did, and then if you choose to perhaps train as a doctor or a scientist or a teacher, yeah, unless you have some own inner awakening within your own journey, you're actually in that environment and in that peer pressure and those structures and those organizations where that worldview is is prevalent. Fortunately for me, and I'd love to hear your story, it still didn't occur to me to share. It wasn't that I was afraid to. I just didn't see the need to share my experiences. And then one day, and I would have been well into my late 30s, I suddenly got a sense, okay, I can start to share this. And it wasn't to try and impose it or to prove me right and anybody else wrong. It was because I was getting cornered in parties. <laughs> and I did realize that there were people who really, if, if I was able to share, just from that place of human to human, person to person, willingness to be open and vulnerable, then it may offer other people a sort of comfort, willingness, openness, invitation to share their stories. Because it seems to me the more we do this, the more we'll recognize that this is our natural way of being. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't the weird, this is the weird way, but it's it's our natural who we really are. So that's really what happened. And I've been on that journey ever since. As they say, the first one through the wall is the one that gets bloodied. And and uh, when you step out of, of line, you're the one that is going to take the the arrows, as they say. Um, and But if you're able to survive that, being these brave scientists who are coming out, yeah. it, it it does give an example to so many others. that you are like, oh, if, if he or she did it, maybe I can start talking about it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I think the world is in a place now, in an awakened place, that it accepts these conversations so much more than it did before. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the the anomaly that is quantum physics. It annoys the the Newtonians so much. Uh, it annoys the materialists so much. Uh, and what it's the the connections between spirituality, between ancient texts that are started science seems to be catching up to what they've been talking about for thousands of years. What is your feeling on that? How that is coming up? Our conversation is a spiritual, scientific, quantum physics conversation as we continue to go. Um, these conversations were unheard of ten years ago, fifteen years ago. They were, and. Um... Maybe the easiest way of responding to that um, is to go back to before the, you know, the early 20th century, mm -hmm. because up to that point, the world was was Newtonian. But I have to say, you know, giving Isaac Newton a break, he's now often recognized as being the last of the alchemists rather than just the first, just the first or one of the first of the natural philosophers or scientists. And he and others um, I would say especially Francis Bacon, who also gets a really bad rap sometimes as the father of the scientific method. I think for both of them, they were very spiritual people. And I think for both of them, they were rather trying to move beyond the superstition of their era 
and authority of a church that really was was preventing any rational investigation mm-hmm. of the deeper nature of reality and and them and Copernicus Galileo all the folks who were the pioneers of that time, were incredibly brave because it wasn't just that you might be sort of um, disparaged by your peers. Mm-hmm. You might get burned at the stake. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is serious stuff. <laughs> this is serious stuff. Get the Galileo um, effect. The Galileo effect is literally a term. Absolutely. So, but the, the point is that the more, therefore, that exploration of the physical world continued, you know, the view of, of the, the church authorities was okay. You can investigate this, but you're not investigating anything beyond this. So this sort of schism gradually took place between science and spirituality. And that continued until by the 19th century, we had an incredible mechanistic worldview of materialism and separation. And that became not just the scientific worldview, as we we both know, it became the societal perspective. You know, with, with the Industrial Revolution, um, organizations, companies, corporations, governments, all of it, all of it, education, healthcare, were all based on this worldview. And so, you know, by the 20th century, when the quantum pioneers and Einstein were discovering what were phenomena that were incredibly anomalous to that mechanistic viewpoint that were really giving us clues to this deeper nature reality, that was pushed to the side. And even Einstein was uncomfortable with quantum physics, as I'm sure you know, he called it spooky action at a distance, so we can come back to that. (laughs) But the reality was what they were unveiling, what were they revealing, were giving us clues that have literally lasted and hung around philosophically for the last century. But now we're discovering more and more and more such anomalous phenomena and perspectives that the old pre-quantum, pre-relativity, mechanistic worldview of separation and materiality just can't hold anymore because the evidence is so compelling that it now, you know, those clues from 100 years ago are now coming front and centre because what they're doing is instead of them just being clues that mind and consciousness are primary to reality, the evidence we're seeing at all scales of existence and numerous fields of research is bringing that front and centre into an unavoidable perspective. And that's what I'd love us to explore, because this is so exciting, because it, we now get evidence for it, you know? Right, it is. It's it's the equivalent of you know the the concept of oh, the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around it to the point where you're like there's just too much evidence now to states that's just not true guys but that's what god said no he never said that you never said that no i never saw i never saw facts <laughs> you know there's an email absolutely and you know when people say this could be the second you know, Copernican mm-hmm. revolution mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. second or third quantum and, and relativity. I think it's even more transformational mm-hmm. and groundbreaking because, you know, when when Copernicus undertook the sort of no, 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 guys, the sun is the centre. And at th- that time it was the centre of the world because we didn't know that there were vast, vast, vast um, space and time beyond our 
visible world. Mm-hmm. For most people, it really didn't matter. Yeah, they went on with their lives. When quantum physics and relativity physics came in, although for folks like you and I, who are, dare I say it, we're weird and we're nerds and we were so excited by it, for most people, it was the world of the very small or the world of the very large. It wasn't their everyday lives. This, I think, is different because mm-hmm. what this is showing is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have, but literally what we and the whole world are. And this evidence that I'm just you know, beginning to sort of share isn't just at those tiny quantum scales or the very large you know, spatial, galactic, universal scales. It's in our everyday lives. We're finding the same patterns underlying earthquakes and underlying human conflicts. We're seeing the way that galaxies grow is the same as the way cities grow. We're seeing the way that ecosystems are informed. So is the internet. We're seeing the same patterns that affect us every day of our lives are the same patterns that are all pervasive throughout the whole universe. And they matter because it's how we choose, it's how we behave, it's how we relate. So that's why I think this is even more substantial, as it were. Well, so you use the word consciousness, and that's a kind of loaded word because there's so many definitions for consciousness. How do you define consciousness in this conversation? I try not to. (laughs) Move on. Next question. (laughs) Nothing to see here. Um, (laughs) For me, I define consciousness as self-aware sentience, self-awareness. And I talk about mind and consciousness because most of the folks that have studied and parsed the understanding of consciousness and mind for, for for their whole lives and very specialized within it, you know, and the ancient understanding talks about cosmic mind as being the ground of all being, which my experiences wholly correlate with and relate with. So for me, um, we are microcosmic co-creators in a universe that is conscious, that is living, that exists and evolves as a non-locally unified entity, but it is a finite thought, a finite thought of the infinite and eternal mind of the cosmos, whether one wants to describe that as, as God or Allah or great spirit, great mystery, the ground source. of being, source, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, that infinite and eternal, but mindful wholeness and the universe which is a great effulgence a great thought a great breath a great you know conscious exploration but on a finite scale of that but there's but there's also so many levels to consciousness because there is our consciousness animal consciousness plant consciousness the planet's consciousness the universe galaxies consciousness i mean just the our solar system and how it works. There is a consciousness around that as well as our own planet's ecosystem. We are in many ways ants on the molehill of earth. Like we are the little creatures that are doing all sorts of things. Just like there are little creatures in our backyard that are doing things. Some doing good things, some doing not so good things. (laughs) Some eating, some weeds are popping up here and there. But was, is that a fair, do you think that's fair to say? 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Oh, very, very fair. You know, and, and this is where the evidence is pointing. This is the, the, the thing. And as you said earlier, the evidence is pointing to where the ancient wisdom, especially for me, the, the Vedic tradition of, of ancient right. India, um, and the Vedic tradition was one that, uh, you know, a number of the quantum physicists literally went out to India because they were realizing that what they were seeing, that the observer and the observed are not separate, that there is potential, that there is an all-pervasive intelligence, and that it's arising from deeper levels, non-physical levels of causation. Those of them who are already aware of the Vedic tradition, you know, were sharing the word, and they were going out and saying, look, we're finding this. And the rishis, the, the Vedic sages, were saying, yes. <laughs> We've known <laughs> this for thousands of years. This is for thousands of years, but it's, it's wonderful that now we have this convergence. But yes, and, and so for me, you know, our entire universe exists and evolves as a living, sentient, conscious, non-locally unified entity that from its first moment, you know, 13.8 billion years ago began not in a big bang. It wasn't big. We know that. And it wasn't a bang. It was incredibly fine-tuned and ordered. But it wasn't just ordered and fine-tuned in that moment. Ever since it's instead of it, it's it's been a big breath, this incredible outbreath as space has expanded and times flowed forward to be able to experience ever more complexity and self-awareness and individuated self-awareness. So it is a journey of mind and consciousness. And for me, yes, we're we're ants. I, I, my Aboriginal friends call us Mingu. Mingu. Mm-hmm. And um Especially Which when means- people used to climb. It means ants. They used to call the folks who, the tourists who climbed what we call Ayers Rock, called Uluru, Mingu. And, and now it's not allowed, but that's what they called them. Um, but we are microcosmic co-creators. Yeah. Because everything in our universe, th- th- what we're being shown and seen is that everything in existence has meaning. Even the weeds in your garden and the ants that bite you and the, you know, whatever, everything in existence has intrinsic meaning and evolutionary purpose. And that's the incredible new understanding and story that the evidence is pointing to, but that the ancient traditions told us of, the indigenous wisdom keepers have told us of. Yeah, and you were saying that the, before the scientists were going over to India to study the Vedics and start, you know, physicists are starting. They were doing that in uh, in the early 19th century or 18th century. Oh, excuse me, 20th century. 20th century. And yeah, and uh, even Oppenheimer. Um, yes. You know, Oppenheimer literally quoted. I think it was Shiva. Uh, yeah, Bhagavad Gita. I think the, I yeah. death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah, because he this he he was even seeing the connections. Yes. Between between back then, but they weren't popular. They weren't put out popular. Like they weren't put out like, oh, well, hey, everybody, we figured this out. It was a very small sect of of scientists that and now it's becoming more and more and more and more growing. And as and more of a scientist I talk to on the show, more quantum physicists I talk to on the show, every one of them says, look, there's pu- there's the public face of a quantum physicist and the private face in the parties, in the corners of the parties. 
and they can't publicly say things that they believe in because it would be career suicide or academic suicide at the place that they happen to be. And then there's those brave souls that decide to come out and go, you know what? I don't, I don't, I disagree. This is what the evidence is pointing to. I mean, just the concept of quantum entanglement is annoying to a materialist. <laughs> it, but the, the reality of it is, I, I, you may be aware of this, um, the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2022 was given to three quantum researchers, mm-hmm. John Clauser, uh, Alan Aspect, and Anton Zeilinger. And they've been studying the universal non-local, non-locality, quantum non-locality for decades upon decades, experimentally. And the Nobel Prize for Physics is only given to settled science. If it's controversial, the prize isn't given. So, for example, Einstein uh, was awarded his Nobel Prize, not for relativity theory, because it was still seen as controversial, but for the photoelectric effect, whereby photons of light ping out quanta uh, uh, from uh, from a metal. and that showed, in fact, the quantized nature of energy matter, along with folks like Max Planck and others. So the fact that the Nobel Prize for Physics last year was given to the scientists studying universal non-locality, I think, is a threshold moment for science. And the other thing is, in 2018, an MIT, a group at MIT and other universities, which included Anton Zellinger, had experimentally managed to what's called entangle, in other words, literally um, create as a, a single entity, as it were, uh, photons of light in a laboratory with starlight from 600 light years away, from photons of light from what's called a quasar, which is a very active, very ancient galactic center, 12.2 billion light years away, showing the cosmological scale of quantum non-locality. But you see, this goes back to the very beginnings of quantum physics because it was realized that for quantum mechanics to work at all, the entire universe had to be non-locally entangled. Correct. And that's something called Bell's inequality, uh, Bell's theorem, Bell's inequality. So what that 2018 experiment was able to do was to show that the levels of entanglement exceeded Bell's inequality and therefore showed that quantum non-locality was at cosmological scales. And, although people don't talk about it so much, that the appearance of our universe, its quantized energy matter and its non-quantized space-time do emerge from deeper non-physical realms, which is what quantum physics says they do. But everybody went, la, 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 la. Look at this. Let's look at the technology instead. <laughs> look at my new iPhone. Isn't this pretty? <laughs> well, let me ask you, let me ask you the, the $10,000 question. What is the cosmic hologram? Are we living in a simulated reality? And is there any proof of that, from what I understand there is, but I'd love to hear your point of view. (laughs) Well, first of all, I wouldn't describe our reality simulated because I think one of the, one of the theory, one of the speculations, and it is only a speculation going around the rounds, is that our universe is a simulation of essentially an advanced 
extraterrestrial culture or some sort. Well, that that's one. Yeah, there's also that's the simulation. Th there's also the simulation theory of that God or the universe or something else yeah. is creating it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think the danger of simulation is describing mm -hmm. us as a sort of a a computer game. Mm -hmm. And I think the danger of it, to be honest, is that it takes away what we're discovering as a universe of meaning and purpose. Because, you know, we've had the old materialist scientific, sorry, materialist separative separation worldview, which mm -hmm. has a universe that is essentially dead, that has no inherent meaning or purpose, where ev evolution is, is sort of driven by random events and essentially okay. an accidental universe, okay? We've now got the evidence that, that really is, is, is turning that on its head. But the simulation suggests something similar. It sort of disempowers us from agency. Hmm. It sort of disempowers us or could be could be construed to disempower us. So that's why I don't use the word. But what I would say is that, yes, um, the evidence is showing that essentially the reality of our universe is holographically manifested. And the proof for that and the, the basis for that goes back some while now, I mean, many a number of decades, to the earliest um, studies of black holes mm. and the thermo, what's called the thermodynamics of black holes. And the question was, what happens when you get a massive star that at the end of its life runs out of its nuclear fuel and therefore gravitationally collapses? And because it's so massive, the gravitational collapse is so powerful that it, it isn't stopped. And the star as a sphere, it was a sphere as a star, so it collapses spherically. And it collapses beyond a point called an event horizon where the gravity is so strong that not even light can escape, hence the term black hole. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Then the question was, well, what happens to all the information of that star? And to cut a long story short, it became understood that instead of the information being lost, it's retained on the event horizon, but instead also of it being proportional to the volume of the star, or the black hole event horizon, in other words, the volume of that 3D sphere, mm -hmm. it's actually proportional to the two-dimensional surface area of the event horizon. Now, mm -hmm. to some bright folks, such as Leonard Susskind and Jacob Beckenstein and Leonard Tehooft and, 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 and uh, Tehooft and others, others, they realized that that was very similar to a hologram. Because in a hologram, Light is, is, is shined off an object. Well, a light beam is, is basically split. Split, split. Part of the beam is shined off a 3D object. It could be an apple. It could be you. It could be anything mm -hmm. we choose. And the light, when it comes back, is reflected back, is full of information about that object. When that then is combined with the other part of the beam, a two-dimensional pattern of information is produced around about that 3D object. And then when another beam of light is shone through that patterning, a hologram is projected of the three-dimensional appearance of that original object that you can walk around, that you can now acoustically, you know, interact with all sorts of incredible technologies. 
But when those folks expanded what they were discovering about the information on of, of black holes and expanded it to the whole universe, they realized that our entire universe could be a holographic projection of information projected as the appearance, the three-dimensional appearance or the four-dimensional appearance of space-time, the three-dimensional of space and the one-dimensional of time. Now, since that time, virtually every theoretical framework that's pushed forward string theory or pushed forward, you know, try to quantize gravity or just try to make <laughs> sense of stuff has come to a very similar conclusion that we can actually better explain the appearance of our universe as a holographic projection and one of meaningfully informed information. So I sometimes joke that quantum physics is so 20th century <laughs> because we're now realizing that the appearance of our universe, it's quantized space, it's quantized energy matter. And I'll use a different word here. It's entropic space time is both arises from deeper levels of Info, intelligent, meaningful, mindful, mm. sentient causation as information expressed as quantized energy matter and information expressed in a complementary way as entropic space-time. And when you bring those together, which I've done in my last couple of books, you get a framework where, you know, we're very straightforwardly you expand the three laws of thermodynamics to laws of information. And suddenly, like a Rubik's Cube, everything just pulls together. And you can understand how our universe exists and evolves in this way. Uh, first of all, this is heresy. Uh, you shall be burned at the stake <laughs> any day now. My feet, are, my feet are getting very warm as we speak. <laughs> I mean, you're basically throwing... It's so much. I mean, I love that explanation, by the way. That's such a beautiful, elegant explanation of of what the 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 hologram the cosmic hologram that we're that we're living in because from i and and please correct me i've heard now that they're discovering that even in the center of every galaxy there is a black hole which then so in the middle of the milky way somewhere yes there's a black hole that has created this now arguably and theoretically based on what you your what you just said that that could be the reflection of that black hole is creating the reflection of this, this galaxy. Is that a possibility? It's certainly an intriguing perspective of it because, you know, we are, we are now speaking of a universe that exists and evolves as a living, sentient, conscious, non-locally unified entity from its very beginning. It's tiny, tiny, fine-tuned beginning 13.8 billion years ago. And we're also now realizing that those what's called supermassive black holes, as you refer to the, the, the middle of our Milky Way, looks to be at the center of all, if not many, many, but possibly all galaxies as they evolve from those, those earlier epochs. Mm -hmm. um, and our supermassive black hole is, is not that big. I mean, it's 3 million... No. Yeah, sizes of our soul. But there's <laughs> one that's just been discovered, I think, that's 30 billion stars, suns 
in the scale of it. I mean, they're absolutely <laughs> vast. And we're very fortunate because ours is, is quite quiescent. Mm-hmm. Some are very active, but ours is quite quiescent. But essentially, they are the, you know, in, in essence, they are aspects of the memory of our of our world, of our universe moving forward. But don't forget, when I talk about the cosmic hologram, I'm talking about our entire universe, the boundary of what we call space-time as a two-dimensional boundary, one of space, one of time. The reason space expands and time flows is that without that, it could exist, but it could evolve because every, every moment, what's called the Planck scale moment, at every Planck scale of that boundary, which is minute, further information, further, if you like, universal information can then be holographically projected. And that enables us to have this conversation Mm -hmm. 13.8 billion years after that first moment where our universe was as simple as it could be, but no simpler, rather like a baby universe to begin this incredible evolutionary journey. But space expanding means every moment there is more of that holographic boundary you know, the, the Indian tradition has the Akashic record. Oh, yeah, of course. That story, yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, I'll be devil's advocate here. If we are a hologram and we're living in a holographic environment, how are we physical? Because when I've seen a hologram, you could push right through it. It's not a physical thing. So what consists of this material materialism that we are in, this physical uh, aspect to it? Well, first of all, when we drill down, we've known this as long as the quantum uh, yeah. you know, yeah. understanding, you get Imagine. to 99.999999999999% no thingness. And what's remaining is relationships and informational relationships. Okay. You know, when, when I was at school, I was taught atoms were little billiard balls. They're not. <laughs> They're vibrational, informational relationships. But the other... Sp- the other sense of that, so so our, our universe is innately relational, but it's not solid. The reason we, we're not grade loop, the reason we don't sink through the floor, are aspects of quantum mechanics, which is the Pauli exclusion principle, primarily, which means that for the particular types of entities that make us up, those waveforms that we call, you know, quarks and electrons, um, they can't occupy the same quantum state at the same time. Yeah. So all mm-hmm. the the makeup of our bodies can't occupy the same quantum state. So we don't just merge into each other. Whereas light, which is a different type of phenomenon, can do, which is why holograms can hold so much information. Mm-hmm. But the other the other force that's coming into this appearance of separation is is electromagnetism. So we have electrostatic, what's called electrostatic repulsions, because the outer orbits of of electrons in atoms are negatively charged and like and like repel. So we have the Pauli exclusion principle and and the, the, you know, the phenomena of electromagnetism that, you know, make our appearance as solid, even though we're not. Right. And as I said that, asked that question, I'm saying it more for people listening. But the second you said, well, you know, I'm like, yeah, I forgot about that. We are pure energy and there is no space if you drill down deep enough. So we're basically just, it seems almost like we're code. 
there's a there's a programming code behind all of this in the sense, not literally I'm saying, but as a an analogy, yeah. there is the code of our bodies. What and then the DNA, and then if you want to start getting into a little bit more metaphysical aspects of things, karma. And all these other aspects, generational karma, you know, why is there a mole in your back? Why can't you do this? Why? What's causing that? There's no reason. These, all this kind of coding, it's all information. It seems like it's constant information moving in and out all the time. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It really is. And I, I've been accused of being obsessed with hyphens because I write <laughs> in hyphen formation to really differentiate between some meaningless gobbledygook and mm. the meaningful information, which is the basic stuff of our universe, of the whole world. And as, as you say, Alex, you know, what this cosmic hologram model and that I continue to write about in the story of Gaia too, which is the evolutionary story of what that means, mm-hmm. is a meaningfully informed universe, which is also multidimensional. So it has levels of, of intelligence, archetypal intelligence, in, in both incarnate and discarnate forms. So it's a much grander, most wondrous, exciting um you know, story and, and a, a new and unitive narrative where, you know, everything in existence has meaning and evolutionary purpose, which means we do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- without question. I love what you're saying in regards to the multi-dimensional because this is one dimension. Then the, you know, I've spoken to so many near-death experiencers and they have, they visited another dimension of some sort, out-of-body experiencers, Um channels other people talking and then if you go into the vedic text they talk about like i think it's 49 levels of different uh consciousness that you can grow into ascended masters go to so you know and you, you constantly are evolving there's so much into it but now that the now that the scientists like yourself are starting to quantify it for us in a different way where it's not woo woo anymore we're getting farther and farther away from woo-woo and getting more and closer and closer to reality and and proof and evidence. But I have to ask you a question. This is a question because you've mentioned it a few times in our conversation, time. Now, my perspective on time is it is a man-made object and our time is based around the rotations around our sun. If you leave our solar system, time does not exist in the way, it's not going to be 12 o'clock somewhere. It's not going to be one o'clock somewhere. What is your definition of time in the scope of universal time versus yeah. our little our little 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock thing that we got going on here? Well, before I do that, before I forget, um, I love I love to say we're moving from woo-woo to wee-wee. Because this <laughs> oh, is oh great. That's wonderful. I love that. <laughs> this is who we really are. Um, yes, I think this is a really common misunderstanding, if if please. To, to honor that perspective, because when Einstein um, realized that space was relative to the position of an observer and time was relative to the position of an observer, I think that wasn't his greatest genius. 
he continued to follow the evidence. And what he followed it to was that, yes, space is relative. Yes, time is relative of themselves. But we have to bring them together as invariant, what's called invariant space-time. So what he understood is when we describe an event, we can't just say three dimensions of space, yeah? We have to say three dimensions of space and one of time. And when we bring that four-dimensionality into a measurement, it doesn't matter whether we're making that measurement here on Earth a galaxy far, far away in a long, long time ago or wherever. And that invariance of space-time means that we can, as cosmologists, talk about a universe that began 13.8 billion years ago as that first tiny, tiny moment of an ongoing out-breath, an ongoing big breath, as I describe it. Mm -hmm. And the way that this works is that as space expands at every point, you know, in the, a Planck scale area, and this is my new, this is named after Max Planck, who's one of the great pioneers. But at every Planck scale time, which is also minute, more and more and more and more information is able to be holographically manifested within space time. So we do have universal time, otherwise, we couldn't, you know, the laws of physics wouldn't work, nothing would hang together. Right. And but we also have this personal perspective of time. You know, Einstein once said, um, and it was only he who could say this and get away with it probably, that uh, if you sit on a hot cooker, a minute feels like an hour. But if you're sitting with a, a, a beautiful young girl, an hour feels like a minute. Now that's a personal sense of time. Yeah. But I'm talking here about the both and. Yes. And, and, and you know, our perspective of time, so much of our biology is based on our position on our planetary home going around our sun. But I'm going way beyond this and saying it's a both and that as, as cosmologists, as, as humans, we can also understand that our entire universe is undertaking a journey of space time where there is a universal time of, and it's one way flow and it goes mm. from the past to the present and at each moment, we're at the bow wave of that here and now, with the future still to unfold. It's really interesting. If you watch that movie, Interstellar, Chris Nolan's- Don't fin- get me started on that movie. Is that a bad movie or a good movie, Tommy? I love the movie. I I deplore the science because it's- Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Regardless of that, but the concept of what he what they said in regards to- when they go, uh, when they were in the spaceship, they're at, at let's say a twenty-four hour period. But if you go down to the planet, every yeah. minute that goes by is a year. Every five minutes goes by, it's a year. And then when they got back, you know, fifteen minutes later, the guy is seventy-five years old, old or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, I'm fascinated now with this cosmic time, yes, universal time, as you call universal it, universal time. Yeah, because it is. I agree with you hundred percent. There has to be some. We are in a you know, if I leave this planet and travel a, a million light years from now, yes. my body will still break down based on whatever measurement of time I am used to. It could be five seconds. It's well, look, look at the measurement of time in dogs and cats, you know, yeah. dog years, dog years versus art. It's a different perspective and a different, Absolutely. a different um, conscious, a conscious perspective of where we're at. So my year 
is yeah. seven years of my cat or, or let's say dog, because it's called dog years, they estimate. Yeah. So they're experiencing time completely different than we are, just like an ant or a, yeah. a, a gnat that lives for, you know, what, 24 hours? Yeah. Completely yeah. is a different perspective than us. So there is a form of time. I think that we get caught up in the whole revolving around the sun time, which is like 12 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock is the master time clock, but there is a universal kind of clock that's different, which is how you can say 4 billion years ago or 3.8 Absol- billion. Absolutely. And yeah, I, 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 but it's not an either or, it's a both and. So as you say, your dogs experience his or her life in the way he or her is experiencing that life and the timing of that life, as will be a mayfly, as is you and I. Um, and the whole universe is experiencing. Now, the universal time is measured in in what we call Planck seconds. But the point of the Planck scale, it it, it really is, it shows us this deeper understanding of our universe's reality because there are four, <clears throat> there are four constants in the universe that we could measure in whatever measures we want to, but they're the speed of light, the gravitational constant, Planck's constant, and what's called Boltzmann's constant, which is around thermodynamics. When you bring them together, they shake out into five measures of energy and matter and space and time and temperature. Now, those measures can actually do what scientists call normalize. In other words, a Planck distance can be identified as the, as the, as the distance that light that constant light travels in one Planck time. So they can all come down to the number one, which means that whether you and I were measuring them in our measures or some being, some, you know, being extraterrestrial being far into the future or far into the past was measuring them, they would tell them as they're telling us foundational understanding about the nature of reality of our universe. Mm. And that's why we can talk about universal space time and universal energy matter in the way we can, and it all hang together as a non-locally unified entity where time can be measured from that point 13.8 billion years ago. And with every Planck scale time, you know, as, as space also expands and time flows to tell this story of our universe. And yet we can also, and it is a both and, experience the passing of time in our own self-aware consciousness. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We've and all done fun. that. Yeah, we've all, absolutely. We've all, we're engrossed in a book, watching a movie, having a conversation, you know, an right? athletic situation where you're in the flow, yes. as they say, that time stands still. Oh, yes. All of that stuff. All of that. And also once we move beyond this this, this cosmic hologram in this, these dimensions of space-time. So, you know, our universe both knows itself in its wholeness because of its non-local universality. And within space-time, the speed of light is the cosmic speed cop, which enables that causality, that universal causality to play out over all of these 13.8 billion years and and ongoing. So again, it's this both and. But when we move into discarnate multidimensional levels, 
of existence and awareness. I'm sure you've had so many conversations and I've had many, many experiences that the sense of time is very different. Oh, absolutely. I, time has flown as you and I have been speaking. Uh, I, I don't even, you know, it, it just, when you're engrossed in something, your your consciousness, your attention is on something so intently, time yeah. stands still or flies by in, in a way, just like Einstein said, when you're with your loved one, an, a minute, you know, or an hour feels like a minute. Yes. But if you're sitting at the DMV uh, <laughs> trying to get your, your license renewed, an hour, a minute seems like an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No question whatsoever. No, it, it is it is fascinating. And I've heard now, please, please correct me if I'm wrong, that because you're saying the speed of light, that the expansion of the universe is going faster. Is that true or not? I heard that no, somewhere. No, it's not. But what you probably heard it as was a, a very, very early epoch of the universe that's hypothesized, it's not yet oh, proven, okay. uh, called the inflationary period. Right. Now, the inflationary period was, was really a hypothesis put forward to get over the the the, the sort of the the the, the um homogeneity of our universe mm. um, uh, and the horizon, what's called the horizon problem of our universe. But when we move into this perspective of a cosmic hologram where the whole universe is non-locally unified, that view and that framework does not need an inflationary epoch. And the inflationary epoch was perceived to be where, where space, space, the whole of space expanded faster than the speed of light. So I've you know, I'm happy to follow wherever the evidence leads, but the evidence is not yet in that there was indeed an inflationary epoch, even though that's okay. often, you know, seen as as a fact. It really isn't. We haven't got the proof of that yet. And it brings its own problems with it because nobody knows how it would start if it started and nobody knows how it would stop. <laughs> <laughs> if it's ever going to stop, if right? It's ever it's, going to, well, the idea is that there's lots of buddings off of universes, and there's a wonderful uh, rule of thumb in science called Occam's Razor, which yeah. is basically go with the simplest it can be, but no simpler, which is an Einsteinian quote as well. And this this really violates, in in that sense, Occam's Razor, um, and I don't think it's necessary. So we'll we'll see, we'll see. Well, let me ask you this because, again, I've heard this concept that the universe is infinite. And if it's not infinite, what the hell's on the edge? <laughs> okay, let's let's do that. Let's do that. Um, there's nothing in space-time, nothing that is infinite. Every measure within space-time of our universe is finite. Mm -hmm. Our universe began a finite time ago not an infant time ago, a finite time ago. Mm -hmm. We also know, looking from looking at uh, analysis of, of hydrogen, that about 9 billion years ago, our universe had a huge sort of push of stellar formation, which uses hydrogen. And that has progressively fallen off. So our universe has very, very little hydrogen left to make more stars. But the biggest one, of the, uh, the other thing is that... Um, from the very early epoch of our universe, when it became transparent to light and atoms could form, it, it basically it began to, to there was a radiance throughout our throughout space. 
As space has expanded ever since, that radiance has moved into the microwave, has been stretched into microwave wavelengths. It's now called the cosmic microwave background. When that was analysed, tiny little temperature differences that were analysed only a few years ago. And first of all, they were found to, to embed the patterns that I was referring to earlier, these, these patterns that are all scales of existence and across numerous fields of research, we call them fractals. Mm -hmm. But those temperature differences were seen to be fractals, but also they were only a finite wavelengths. They fill all of space. So there's nothing in space and nothing in the cosmic microwave background that is not finite, okay? We also now know from this framing of a cosmic hologram that it is itself finite. It's a holographic boundary that is a boundary of, of a conscious but finite universe. And the final piece of, of sort of, if you like, con um, potential evidence is that our universe began in its, in its hottest state, its Planck scale temperature, and its lowest informational content, or what I call entropy. And ever since, as space has expanded and times flowed, the temperatures dropped and the entropy's increased. Now, we're now at a temperature of only 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, whereas it started at a temperature of 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin, trillions mm -hmm. and trillions of times hotter than the centre of our sun. So we're right down at the, the sort of the final, you know, pushes, as it were, where mm. the entropy, the informational content still expanding, but the temperature will fall and it can't fall be below absolute zero. So that, again, suggests a finite ending. Now, what's then beyond it? Infinity, <laughs> eternity. Right. This so is where we get back to the Vedic sages, right? Because you, there, because science can go so far. Yes. And until we finally, exactly. we until you fun into you run into a wall, meaning yes. like okay, so the big breath, got it. The big bang, if you want to call it that, fine, whatever. What was there prior? Where did exactly. it come from? How did it? Was it and this is and this is where you you know, have to kind of go into the spiritual, yes. have to kind of dig into the Vedic and into these ancient ideas that are far beyond what we can comprehend yet. And we're still trying to figure out things that they've been saying for thousands of years, and they're discovering new things in archaeology and all this. Let's not even get into ancient civilizations, because that could be a whole other lovely conversation we could have, subject. a whole other subject. But it is fascinating that we are, I mean, by the way, that was a beautiful explanation, by the way. I've learned immense immense amount of stuff in this conversation um but let me ask you something because i've heard this term thrown around and i'd love to hear what you think of it what is sacred geometry and how does that affect you know you know the role of how it's just the universe is structured well um there is a there is a teaching there's a curriculum of teaching called the quad quadrivium and that means fourfold and it comes back to this ancient universal wisdom teachings perspective that everything in what we call reality is essentially number. With the cosmic hologram and the understanding that, you know, we've just touched on today, that number, those numbers, those basic numbers are ones and zeros of digitized information with me being obsessed by the hyphen, meaningful information. And they 
are the pixelation of our universal reality at the Planck scale. And they then accumulate to form, literally, to form the appearance of quantized energy matter and entropic space-time. But from those zeros and ones, we can express numbers. We can express numbers, for example, in a Fibonacci series of zero, one, one, two, three, five. And we find the Fibonacci series and many, many other numerical relationships form the patterning at all scales of existence. But the quadrivium founded on this cosmology of, of, of you know, idealized numbers talked of music as being number in time and geometry as being number in space. So when we talk about sacred geometry, it's just a recognition of the sacredness of creation, of this beautiful, you know, spiritually based, universally consciousness basis of all that we call our reality. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So there is such a, and the ancient Greek geometers who only had a sort of straight edge and something to run with and mark with, you know, realized that, you know, we had five types of three-dimensional appearances of perfect solids called the platonic solids, you know, tetrahedron, the cube, mm-hmm. etc. And in two dimensions, a tetrahedron is a triangle. Now, what we realize now is that instead of the idealized shapes, well, you know, triangles, same, you know, same relationships, you can scale it up, scale it down, same relationships. We now discover through um, analysis of vast amounts of data, these so-called fractal, these so-named fractal patterns, which they're, they're, they're what's called their asymptote, their, their convergence become those idealized shapes. But because clouds are fractal, river systems are fractal, the solar wind is fractal, atoms cluster their electrons fractally when they change from insulators to metals, these are not the idealized, but they are relational. They are innately relational, and they also scale up and scale down. So these are the patterns of reality. So all is sacred geometry. That's beautiful. Beautifully stated. Beautifully stated. And speaking of the this shape of a triangle and math, I'd love to hear your point of view on the pyramid, the Great Pyramid. And the math that's embedded in it, it is so profound. Yes, it is. It is a message of, of I think it's, I forgot what the exact mathematical, mathematical equation is, but if you multiply it by X number, you get the circumference of the earth. And if you, and then if you do another one, the height of it is the height of the earth. It's like, it was like almost the ancients were leaving this information behind in the only way they knew that was not going to be erased uh, yes. and and not taken out. Where do you think this this detailed information came from? Because as you, I love ancient civilization. I love ancient history. Lost it. I love all this. That's another conversation we could have at another time because I would love to get into it with you about that as well. But it seems that the pyramids, which should have gotten better into with time. <laughs> degraded it went straight downhill 
Yeah. And it was like, that was the, the peak. The Sphinx was the peak of, of whatever was there at that time, the people and so on. And the technology kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, what is your thoughts behind who created it? What created <laughs> it? Um, and how in God's green earth could they have ins inserted such precise mathematical equations in the geometry of a pyramid at a time when, quote unquote, we were supposed to be, you know, you just, you know, running around in the sand, <laughs> you know, to praying to Ra, like seriously. Absolutely. Um, it is another conversation because it is so vast. But many years ago, clairaudiently, I was given that we would come to a time, and I do feel it's now, when we would literally remember who we really are. And we, we would remember our terrestrial, our intraterrestrial, and our extraterrestrial heritage. Mm. And it seems to me that we're on the threshold of so much of this now. Mm. And it's a remembering that is inviting us to open our hearts and our minds to these incredible possibilities and understanding. Not so that we open our mind and, you know, our, and our brains drop out. You know, it really is. But the evidence is being discovered now in so many ways. And, you know, we're at a situation where, you know, for the first time we have NASA investigating UFOs, UAPs. We have, you know, mm. we have Congress. We have so much. We have pilots. hundred now, I think, well, more pilots have just signed a new letter saying disclosure we're on the threshold, I think, of what I was given many years ago. That this will be a time of remembering. So those ancient mysteries, those incredible abilities, I think are now, you know, being rediscovered and reevaluated and reopened up. And we'll have a much more profound perspective of this. And the other thing that I'm really excited about is what this is showing us and what the evidence is showing us. Is, is it's naturalizing multidimensional communications. Mm. So, you know, synchronicities, supernormal phenomena, not supernatural, not paranormal, supernormal. These are our naturalized, you know, heritage as microcosmic co-creators of this wonderful, marvelous universe. So I think we're in an incredible moment and it's a crucial moment of choice because our our worldview of materialism and separation has brought us to this edge of an abyss. Mm -hmm. And unlike, you know, I know a lot of folks and it really is an incredibly challenging moment, but just, just sense, and I know you do, and I hope our, our listeners do, just sense the invitation of our universe to grow up to become its co-evolutionary partner of consciousness, to remember that we're not just human beings. You know, our planetary home, Gaia, is sentient. We're Gaians. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, and we have the evidence now to support us, that as my dear friend Joni Carley says, you know, unity isn't an aspiration. It's our existential reality. My other dear friend, Julie Krull says, you know, unity isn't ideal, it's real. So what do we wake up to be where the unity is expressed in radical diversity, where we have meaning and purpose and uniquely so? 
is it is it is it it's so beautiful the way you stated that and, and it's i think we're getting better at it but i think there's so much of this dogmatic programming that we have been forced throughout our existence that if it skews away from the programming that we've had since and i use the word programming strategically because you know we as we're born we're programming around us a people and our parents beliefs and all this kind of stuff if anything defers from our foundational programming of what the world is the reality is god the universe our religion what a position of a woman is and a man is in society and all of these things when that is challenged that's when wars happen that's when uh action happens that's when you fight to defend it I do see an opening of those ideas, especially in the newer generation. The older yes. generation is just ground in. Um, I fully, I believe my generation is kind of a bridge generation because we have one foot in the old and we have one foot in the new. I was, I knew what it was like before the internet. I knew when it was born. I knew it, and how it is afterwards. Where my children were born in a place where they just don't understand a time where you couldn't have every bit of information at your fingertips whenever you wanted. So it, it, it is interesting to see how we're going to move forward um, as, a, as a species, as a species. I agree. And, and, you know, for me, it's really interesting. This year, 2023, is the 400th anniversary of a book called De Augmentum Scientarium by Francis mm-hmm. Bacon. And I mentioned earlier, you know, he's often given a bad rap as sort of leading us into this materialist, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. Reading his work and knowing some of the scholars that have studied his work for a very long time, I would suggest a different perspective that he realized, as I mentioned, that his world was steeped in superstition and it was oh. no longer health and it was not healthy. And so the scientific method was a method of being able to follow where the evidence led. And for him, my perspective is that he hoped it would reveal the divine. It wouldn't get rid of the divine. It would reveal it and bring it into a greater understanding of the nature of reality. And there's a very esoteric pulse around 400 years. And this year is the 400th year anniversary. So I'm just sort of sitting Mm. and waiting and drinking my tea and (laughs) and (laughs) doing all I can to this is the but just to, to perhaps finish with um your point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because I'm I'm part of a group of, of thought thought folks around the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals mm-hmm. and their realization that with the siloed thinking of the worldview that you know you've been describing, that those sustainable development goals cannot be implemented because they they they're not inter- they don't recognize the full interconnectedness of all that they're seeking to try and achieve. And so last year, I worked with a group of folks and came up with what we call a unitive narrative, which is the new a new narrative of unity and diversity based on the evidence. But just before the end of last year, the United Nations, for the first time in its 77-year history, formally adopted a grouping of NGOs and other organizations, what's called a thematic cluster based on unity a 
unitive thematic cluster, whose aim is to bring all of this understanding into implementations and interventions and capacity building and education and governance and all the other. And so a lot of my work and many, many others now um, are really, you know, hoping to share and invite. And it's not an imposition, Alex, mm -hmm. and it's not a threat because all ways are all paths up the same mountain in this, mm -hmm. in this understanding. So it's an invitation to join the party and, and honor every path and all paths. Dr. Jude, I can talk to you for another three or four hours without question. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all my guests. Um, how, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? For me, it's a life of, it's a life of experiencing that I am, I belong. I belong to the whole world, that there is no separation for me. So it's a life of love. It's a life of joy. It's a life of gratitude. It's a life of curiosity. It's a life of meaning. Whatever that meaning is for me, it's a life of purpose, whatever that purpose is for me. And it's also a life where I feel at my happiest, my most joyful when I serve the good of the whole. What is your, how do you define God? God is everything. Simple as that. Um, if you had an opportunity to go back to your younger self and give your younger self, that little girl, a piece of advice, what would it be? Get over yourself. <laughs> Very true. Especially if it's a teenage version of you. <laughs> <laughs> and, last and last question, what is the ultimate purpose of life? To love and to know that we're, we're we're to love and to know that we're 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 loved, that we are microcosmic co-creators, meaningful, purposeful, in a loving universe. And uh, where can people find out more about you and pick up your book, The Story of Gaia, and all the other work you're doing? Um, the website is www.wholeworld-view.org. Um, which is an organism, it's not an organization, it's an mm -hmm. organism that I co-founded uh, in 2017 when the Cosmic Hologram uh, was launched. And its aim, our aim, is to uh, serve the understanding, experiencing, and embodying of unitive awareness. So and that have... has loads of resources. Fantastic. And do you have any parting words for our audience? Somebody once asked me, what would be my guidance to myself? And my guidance to myself, if I ever have a quandary in life, <clears throat> is to choose love. Just to choose love. As, as, Wayne as Wayne Dyer said so beautifully, when you have the chance to be right or the, or the chance to be uh, to, either to love or to be right, always choose love. Or be kind, to be kind or to be right, choose being kind. Always be kind. Always choose love. My dear, it has been a pleasure and honor speaking to you. I have to have you back. You know, it is a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much for not only this conversation, but for what you do with the, in the world to try to awaken us all to the truth of where we're at, my dear. Thank you so much. 
Bless you, Alex. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. And I'm back at you. <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Jude so much for coming on the show and sharing all of her knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 258. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.